Good morning, City Light. My name is Cameron, if I haven't met you. And I don't like personal attention, but I want to say that it is my 35th birthday today. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I really just feel like God prompted me to say this just right there. Um, just as his son, I feel his good pleasure this morning. I just can't tell you how uh, thankful I feel to be adopted as one of his children. And then it just, it just struck me a second ago, just out of sheer grace, he's called me to preach his word. And I feel so unworthy, but I'm so thankful for that. And in this past year, I got to, to marry my wife. We've only been married eight months, and she's been a good gift to me this past year. And I just wanted to say to you, I had to confess before I start this sermon, I just feel God's good pleasure this morning. So grateful to live another year and that he's breathed new life into me. And so my message's title is, Jesus Makes All Things New, from Colossians 1, 18 through 23. So open or activate your Bible if you're not there yet. And while you're turning there, remember last week, Gavin, from verses 15 through 17, he held forth Jesus as the Lord of creation. Remember, he's God, he's creator, he's sustainer of creation. But reflect for a moment. Have you ever been to a place that made you question whether or not Jesus really is Lord of that creation? Well, that place for me is not Omaha. It is Maywood, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago on the west side of the city. Now, Maywood is not as bad as other parts of Chicago, but it's plenty bad enough. It's a place that's plagued by gang and drug activity, theft and violent crimes like rape and murder. And so when I was a youth pastor, and when I found out about Maywood, I said, well, what a better place than to take my middle schoolers and high schoolers there on a mission trip. And so we formed a partnership with a church planter there and spent a week in Maywood over the course of five different summers. And I'll never forget my first ever day of service there, myself, 30 students and leaders. We meet Pastor John in an overgrown park, and he hands us rubber gloves and garbage bags, and he says this, get busy picking up trash and telling people about Jesus. Not the most glamorous idea of a mission trip that I had in my head, but part of his church planning strategy was loving on the city through tangible ways like neighborhood beautification. Now, if you've got teenage kids or grandkids, you might imagine their reaction. They were less than thrilled about that, and that was an understatement. So being the savvy youth pastor that I was, I decided to make a game out of it. And so we had to pick up all sorts of trash, including empty drug baggies and alcohol containers. And so I said, okay, kids, every dime bag you pick up is worth five points. This is a real story. And every dime bag you pick up that has like Batman on it or a cartoon character, well, that's worth 10 points. Now, Beer cans were worth five points. Oh, but if you found a 40, 40s were worth 20 points. And I'll never forget Will, one of my innocent little middle school boys, tugging my shirt and saying, Pastor Cameron, what's a 40? And this was an educational opportunity. So I said, well, son, that's an empty 40-ounce bottle that once held malt liquor. And he said, well, okay, I got it. And then about 10 minutes, y'all thinking, you're a terrible youth pastor. You got to do what you got to do when you're in a place like that, a bunch of kids. Now, about 10 minutes after that, I was blessed with what would become one of my favorite student ministry memories. Little Will, about 50 yards ahead, is screaming, Pastor Cameron, 40 points. He's jumping up and down, 40 ounce in each hand, 
as leftover liquor sloshes out all over his clothing. Thankfully, we had a washing machine there before we got him back to Mama. And as we walked around and picked up trash, you know, the thought that came to me again and again is, you know, this place just isn't what it should be. Uh, it, streets were filthy. Many of the schools were in bad condition. Ball hoops were missing. Playgrounds were grown up and out of commission. Kids didn't have a safe place to play. It was as if people there had stopped caring. And then it dawned on me that the root of the city's problem is that the people there aren't what they should be. It's sad, but I learned that many pastors in the city were corrupt and were just using people for money. Politicians are corrupt in Maywood. Uh, Established churches are inward focused there and have quit caring about the city. And so many of the young men there grow up with absentee dads and get recruited by gangs. And the gangs are wreaking havoc on the city. And so, yes, Jesus is Lord of creation. But the Bible teaches us that creation is cursed because of sin. And so many of my memories there illustrate that vivid reminder. But in the midst of all the darkness, there were glimmers of hope shining through. And it dawned on me, while I was there, I was part of the hope. Uh, Pastor John and his fledgling congregation, they were gathering God's people to help renew the city with hopes of renewing the citizens with the gospel. And as our teams and other teams weeded parks and repaired playground equipment. Uh, We tried to create safe spaces for the kids to play. And on more than one occasion, I saw John literally grab gang members by the shirt collar and forcefully escort them out of the parks, God keeping him safe as he did so. And as we picked up trash and mowed lawns, residents would ask us, why did you travel so far to do this? And we got to say to them, our selfless acts are motivated by the selfless actions of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And teenagers and kids were coming to faith through Jesus through the sports camps we put on. And this included a really sweet and funny gal named Dominique. She came to love Jesus, loved basketball, and our team just grew to cherish her over the years. And so that little church that met in homes and in the equipment room of a park building, they weren't much in the world's eyes. But listen, over time, that little church became indispensable in the eyes of Maywood. Because God was using that little congregation to make all things new in that city. And understand that this is the kind of work that Jesus wanted to accomplish through the little church of Colossae. He desired to work in and through them to redeem the city of Colossae. But their message and the gospel mission was being threatened by the false teachers. Remember, these bozos questioned the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus to save and sustain the congregation. And if they questioned his sufficiency, they would not be motivated to move out with the gospel. So having just articulated that Jesus is Lord of the cosmos, Paul shifts his focus to the church in verses 18 through 23. And he makes it clear to them and to us that Jesus is also Lord of new creation, creation and new creation, namely the church. And Jesus is working to recreate what is broken in the world through the church as we, his people, point others to the reconciling work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And so City Light, I hope this message does at least two things for us today. I hope it intensifies our appreciation for Jesus 
And it also helps us to appreciate the church in even greater ways. I hope we leave here seeing the indispensable role that the church and even this church plays in the great redemptive plan of God. And then secondly, I hope we walk away with a renewed sense of hope that Christ isn't finished working in the world. And he's not finished working in you. So yes, you'll leave here today and you'll look around and see, you know what, things aren't as they should be. But I promise you, the Bible says that Jesus is working out a solution. And so here's the first big truth I want us to see today. And it comes from verses 18 through 20. So you're taking notes, your pen, your mascara, your eyeliner, whatever you've got on, you write this down. Jesus is the Lord of new creation. Jesus is the Lord of new creation. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different today, but I think you can handle it. I'm going to do some fast and furious biblical theology to help us understand this text. Are you with me? Can you handle that? I'll give you a free donut on the way out if you'll hang with me. All right. So when we see the theme of creation and recreation woven throughout Scripture, and we place this text on top of that, I think it will really help it to pop. And so as Paul, as his attention shifts from the cosmos to the church, between the the first creation and, and the second creation, there's the unstated assumption that something bad has went wrong. And so humanity's great fall into sin that we read about in Genesis 3, it necessitated God's recreation. So keep in mind that in the Bible, in a general way, um, heaven is God's space, and earth refers to our space. And in the beginning, heaven and earth were one. Um, God and man lived in perfect harmony. We enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the garden. And it's remarkable that he even chose to partner with us to build a beautiful and flourishing world. We get to be his stewards. But unfortunately, something went terribly wrong. Adam and Eve rebelled against God because they wanted to create a world apart from God. And by doing so, they ushered in a curse on the earth. And so church, this is the reason we have things like Midwestern winters and gangbangers in Chicago, equally frightening in this southern boy's eyes. And now our space is separated from God's space because of our sin. Oh, but thankfully, out of grace, mercy, a desire to keep relating to his people, God allowed heaven and earth to overlap to a degree so that we could still experience his presence. In the Old Testament, they experienced his presence through what? The tabernacle and the temple. And it's striking to me that these temples... They were decorated with things like fruit trees and flowers, images of angels and gold, and all that's doing one thing. When people go to these tabernacles or temples, it reminds them of their experience back in God's presence, back in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's the same reason why you decorate your bathroom with beach paraphernalia, um, you know, shells and whatnot. It's to make us feel like we're sitting in a lawn chair in paradise when we're on the toilet. You know you do it. You're like, I've never heard any biblical theology like this. Well, we got to do what we got to do to make it land where you're at. Now, at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. You've heard of this. And that's the hot spot of God's presence. But understand, God's presence also creates a problem. God's space is full of holiness and justice and beauty, 
But what's human space full of? Well, sin and injustice and ugliness. And so the conflict of these two spaces is remedied through animal sacrifices. It's kind of gross, a little bit icky, but when an animal died in a person's place, it somehow absorbed their sin, and it created a clean space, so to speak, so that God and man could interact once more. Well, you might be saying, well, that's good news for them, the children of Israel, but what about people like us? Do we have any sheep or oxen or cows tied up behind this old high building? Is Gavin's pocket knife sharp and ready for some bloodletting? Uh, what do we do? Well, we have to keep going in the Bible to discover how we experience God's presence. And in the Bible, we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And John says some incredible things about Christ. We're told that God became human in Jesus, and get this, made his dwelling among us. This literally means that he set up a Coleman tent on the earth. He tabernacled with us. And so what John is claiming is that Jesus Christ is the new temple. Christ is the place or the person where heaven and earth now overlap. And what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't stay in his clean and safe space. He keeps moving toward people, toward broken people, toward damaged people. He casts out demons. He heals their sickness. He forgives their sins. And so basically, Christ is creating little pockets of heaven wherever he travels. And I love the fact that in the midst of a world filled with sin and death and decay, people can experience God's presence as they're in proximity to his son, Jesus Christ. And remember, this is why Jesus keeps telling everybody that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we might get confused because the religious leaders are threatened by Jesus. And they eventually kill him. And it seems that the plan to unite heaven and earth is foiled. But also keep in mind, earlier in the Gospel of John, what does the good Baptist, John the Baptist, say about Jesus? Behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's glorious. Not only is Christ the temple, but he takes it a step further, and he becomes the temple sacrifice. And so at the cross, Jesus absorbs sin, and he creates a clean space for us that isn't limited like the way that the animal sacrifices were. And through Jesus, now we can boldly stand in the presence of God through his Son. And so then Jesus dies, and he's resurrected. And he ascends to heaven. And then he gives us the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit. And he sends his followers out in the power of the Spirit to share the good news of his sacrificial death for sinners. And as the gospel spreads, more and more people are recreated in his image. And more and more of heaven and earth are reunited. And those recreated people, they gather together in what? Churches. You, you're God's new creation. It's beautiful. In the New Testament, Christ's followers are described as a temple where God's presence now dwells by His Spirit. So in a very real sense, the church is heaven on earth. We're not perfect, but we're a people who are aspiring to see God's will being done in us, through us, as it's being perfectly done in heaven. So if you think about it, this even transforms the way we do church planting, doesn't it? It's not less than this, but it's not just about people coming to know Jesus. As churches multiply, 
more and more of God's manifest presence multiplies on this planet. So y'all okay? You need a smoke break, bathroom break, donut? We're finished. You hung in there. I'm so proud of you. I hope that was helpful. I hope it'll help make this text pop. Now, against this backdrop, my goodness, isn't it so easy to see in verse 18a why Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church? You know, this metaphor refers to the relationship that a physical head has with the body. Our heads are sovereign over our bodies, controlling them, dictating what they do. So similarly, Christ is in control of creation and recreation from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. And so, as Paul helps us to see that, as we see that throughout the thread of Scripture, now he moves and he gives us three specific reasons why Paul should, why Jesus should be the head of the church. So it's a pretty good resume. So now Paul gives three specific reasons why Christ should be head of the church. And I'll say it this way. If, if Jesus posted his resume for the position of head of the church on monster.com, he would get hired immediately for the following three reasons. So number one, Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 18 says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so as Gavin taught us, uh, firstborn means rank. In his resurrection, Christ becomes supreme over new creation. Now, other people have been raised from the dead before, but here's what makes Christ's resurrection unique. He was the only one to ever rise from the dead and then not die again. Therefore, his resurrection is the most important resurrection. And without that, we cannot be raised to newness of spiritual life. And without his resurrection, we cannot be raised in the end to enjoy eternal life alongside him forever. So the church would not be here without the resurrection of Jesus. He gets to be the head for that reason. And here's the second reason. Jesus is divine. Look at what verse 19 says. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it elevates. Here's another reason that Christ gets to be the head. You know, the Colossians were being falsely instructed to experience God's presence through other means. But Paul corrects that and says, no, wait a second. You experience God's presence in the person of Christ. So God's presence, divine attributes, and power dwell in Jesus. So as I said earlier, Christ fulfills the role of the new temple. And so we come face to face with God Almighty when we look into the face of Jesus. And so here's the simple logic. Since Jesus is God, he is Lord over everything, creation and new creation included. He's Lord over the church. And there would be no new creation, no church apart from his divine power. Only God can make a spiritually dead person come up to newness of life. Then here's number three. Jesus reconciles. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the purpose of God's fullness in Christ is to reconcile the entire created realm to Jesus. And I love the way that theologian in residence, uh, Dory Peterson, says it. 
she says that God desires to make friends with the universe. I think it's a beautiful way to put it. So new creation's necessary because of the rift that sin created between us and our creator God. And so reconciliation refers to the, the restoration of this broken relationship. And so, yes, cosmic reconciliation is in view. Uh, Jesus will eventually reconcile all things back to himself. But Paul's primary focus here is personal reconciliation. And God's method of reconciling you and I back to himself is through the death of his son, Jesus. See, our sins make us enemies of God, alienated from God, as we'll see. But through Jesus, we, ha- we come to have peace with God. So how does this happen? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus became sin for us on the cross. When we humble our hearts and turn from our sins and trust in him, he removes our sins, replaces them with his righteousness, and he gives us a right standing with God. So Jesus is head of the church because without his reconciliation, there would be no church. We wouldn't be gathered here today. So we owe our entire existence, creation, new creation, to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, since it's clear that Jesus is the head of new creation, can we pause to just think about for a second how silly, tragic, and even blasphemous it is when churches try to put any person or anything else at the head besides Jesus Christ. You know, pastors don't have the power to recreate. We are powerless apart from Jesus. Yet many churches are nothing more than a cult of personality centered on a superhero pastor. And then other churches have social issues as their primary agenda. Now, don't get me wrong, we should care about social justice. But when we divorce good deeds from gospel centrality and gospel proclamation, we withhold to the world the only key to lasting transformation. Christ must be the head. You know, somebody actually asked me not too long ago, why does City Light aspire to be an annoyingly Christocentric church? Maybe annoyed at the fact that we would keep Jesus central, talk about him every Sunday, every sermon, every song we sing. It was because there's no such thing as a Christian church without Jesus as the head. He is the author and agent of new creation. We owe our entire existence to him. So you can call it a social club, you can call it a self-help center, but if a church doesn't have Christ at the head if they're not centered on his person, his work, and his word, then don't you dare blaspheme God by calling it a Christian church. Only Christian churches have Christ as the head. And we also say it's futile to think that we can flourish spiritually apart from the church. I have tried. I am fiercely independent by nature. We can't live our lives that way. We can't live our spiritual lives this way. You think about it, Jesus is so closely connected to his church that this text says that he relates to us the way our head relates to our bodies. Therefore, the only way to faithfully commit yourself to Jesus, the head of the church, is to be an accountable part of his body. And again, I've tried it, and I've discovered that this mystic, 
individualistic spirituality, Lone Ranger Christianity, it doesn't work. It leaves us lacking. We wander around aimlessly. Listen, God means for his purposes in your life to be fleshed out in Christian community. And that's why we're so passionate about moving beyond the crowd to making disciples through city groups here at City Light. And so Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the Lord of new creation, the church. And he's reconciling the world to himself, cosmic reconciliation. Now he's going to give us some instructions here, show us how this works out personally, how the reconciliation of Jesus works out in our own lives. So big point number two is this. Jesus accomplished our reconciliation. It's personal. Christ accomplished our reconciliation. And we see this in verses 21 through 23. Now, 21 gives us the bad news. It lets us know why we need a reconciled relationship with God. 21 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... And so our sin, which fleshes out in hostile thoughts and evil actions, they separate us, they alienate us from God. And this separation is a miserable and permanent condition. But this is the sad state of all humanity apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hear that. The only way to heaven to make it plain is through Christ. Now, That might be hard to hear, especially if you live your life with the ethic of good old boy ethics, like the ones that a lot of my southern men live by, like the ones we find in this Florida Georgia line song. Now, it's classified as country very loosely. Uh, As a matter of fact, if I could get on a soapbox just for a moment, I would put their music only one notch above a cat scratching on a chalkboard, but... Here's what one of their songs says. Yeah, we're proud to be young. We stick to our guns. We love who we love and we want to have fun. Yeah, we cuss on them Mondays and pray on them Sundays and pass it around and dream about one day. And, you know, that might be you. You're saying, Pastor, are we really that bad? I mean, sure, I love to raise a little hell on the weekends, but also pop into church on occasion on Sundays when I'm not hungover. Am I really evil? Is a good old boy like me alienated from God? Well, here's my simple answer to that uh, question. Since God created everything, and since he knows everything, I just think it's so wise to defer to him about the diagnosis of our hearts and not ourselves. I mean, that's like me uh, getting on WebMD and doing my best to diagnose my condition as opposed to going to a paid professional the doctor. I mean, listen, I have talked myself into death so many times on WebMD, and it's been heartburn every single time. We need to go to the one who's the Lord over our hearts to get his diagnosis. And his word says that because of sin, everybody's separated from him. I know that's really hard to hear, but we should at least be thankful that he has given us an accurate diagnosis. And then we should be eternally grateful that the remedy is the atoning work of Christ, that he's remedied our alienation after giving us a diagnosis. Verse 22 says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
What I love about this is it's Christ who takes the initiative in our reconciliation. He moves toward us. So the word reconciliation carries political connotations. In the Greek world, when a little party offended a a large party, a superior, a sovereign, that little party had to move toward the sovereign and to make amends, to make reparation, to try to get back in their good favor. But notice Paul flips the script in a beautiful way here. And he helps us to see that it's God, the offended party, who actually moves toward us while we were still sinners. God initiates reconciliation. And since we have no way on earth in our power to amend the damage we have done to him, he then takes it a step further, and God amends the damage we've done the relationship through Jesus on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus satisfied the justice of God by dying the death that we deserve to die. Christ on the cross became the once and for all temple sacrifice for every single person in this room who's trusted in him. Now, why did Jesus have to reconcile us? And I love the second part of verse 22. The good news keeps getting better and better. Notice, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, we cannot transgress into holy space because of our sins. But when we turn from our sins, trust in Jesus, and get the righteousness that he's provided for us, we're then able to stand firmly in the presence of God with all boldness. For Jesus, we're presented to God the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not accustomed to having those attributes described to you. You're not used to having your name alongside holy and blameless and above reproach. Maybe you've got a really shady past, like this one young lady did that I did premarital counseling for back in my office in Louisville. They confessed, she confessed that she had a really promiscuous past. But since trusting in Jesus, she was fighting for her purity. And her and her fiancé were saving themselves from marriage. They were so excited to do things God's way. But during the wedding dress shopping process, some great aunt told her that she could not buy a white dress because she wasn't a virgin. And white dresses were reserved for pure girls. Well, after seeing red for a moment, I said, Honey, you have got my pastoral permission. I'll even pay for it to go ahead and buy, and buy that white dress. I didn't want to do that after I saw the price tag. To go ahead and buy that white dress. Because in God's eye, she has been reconciled to himself through his son Jesus. And the blood of Christ has washed her completely clean. And so now her new reality is she stands before God the Father as one who's pure, holy, blameless, innocent, above reproach in his sight through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And City Light, I say to you that it's remarkable. Maybe you struggle with guilt in the past you left behind when you trusted your life to Christ, but all those attributes are true of every single person in this room who has turned and trusted in Jesus. And what I love about the gospel is that these attributes will be even truer of ourselves. We will we'll grow in Christ's likeness as we age along together in this existence. And I love the way that Martin Luther explained this. He used this simple analogy to explain this process. Uh, he described the condition of a patient who was mortally ill. 
The doctor proclaimed that he had medicine that would surely cure the man. And the instant that the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. At that instant, the patient was still sick. But as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body, the patient began to get well. And so it is with our reconciliation and justification, Luther says. As soon as we truly believe, that very instant we start to get better. The process of becoming pure and holy is underway, and its future completion is certain. And so when we get to verse 23, our final passage here, Paul's not expressing doubt that believers will press on until the end. He's actually expressing confidence that they will continue. So here's what this text says. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, my Greek professor always told us that Greek is a lot like underwear. It should support what you say behind the pulpit, but you should never show it in public. It's just a good mark to remember if you're a seminary student, if you ever want to get up and try to wax eloquent on a Sunday morning. But sometimes the Greek helps us here, and so based on the Greek construct, scholar Peter O'Brien, he paraphrases Paul's idea here. And so, quote, At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, I am sure you will. So Paul's saying that he has confidence that those who are truly in Christ will stand firm in the faith and will make it until the very last day. You know, this doctrine of perseverance, it's, it's a bit mysterious. Again, Paul fully expects believers will make it until the end. In fact, perseverance is evidence that we're truly in Jesus. But practically speaking, perseverance doesn't work out by being lazy, does it? The gospel doesn't just work like magic. The gospel should motivate us to continually engage with Jesus. We must be faithful to Him and to the church. We must forcefully build our lives on the foundation of God's Word and not on the shifting sands of false teaching. So the way it works out is we must take action, but we also rest in the finality of Christ's atoning action on our behalf. Yes, we must exercise energy and strive, but we know we will ultimately make it to the end because of Christ's striving on our behalf. Now, the reason Paul ends this way, the fact that Paul calls them to stand firm in the gospel it reveals that there will be some resistance in the Christian life. Let's do a quick show of hands. Has anybody had any resistance to your faith this week? I don't know what it is. My wife can testify to this. We're in an unusual season of spiritual warfare. It's been hard the past couple of weeks. It just feels like the dark forces are ever-present. We're warring against them. And the reason we have resistance is we're living... And what the theologians call the already but not yet. Have you heard that phrase before? The already but not yet. All that means is that the kingdom of God has already broken in through Jesus. And because of him, there's real joy to be had in this existence. We enjoy his natural revelation. We enjoy the revelation of Jesus. We delight when God's movement multiplies and more and more people are recreated in his image. But Jesus hasn't yet returned the second time, has he? As we look around, as you walk out of this building today, you'll quickly see that things aren't as they should be. 
Until Christ returns, the, the Christian experience will be joy, but we'll also have to endure our fair share of sighing and sorrow until he returns. You know, one of my life verses is 2 Corinthians 6.10. And to paraphrase, Paul speaks to the fact that our present reality as Christians is an existence of joy that will always be intermingled with sorrow. He's sorrowful, yet he's always rejoicing. And so I rejoiced in that park in Maywood when young Dominique placed her faith in Jesus. She got a brand new start in her life. But then I wept when I got this article emailed to me from the Chicago Tribune a couple of years after we were there. Dominique Thomas, it should pop up for you, was a happy, funny 14-year-old who took her future very seriously. The Proviso East freshman was enrolled in a mentoring program and had attended a college seminar this past summer on engineering and technology. And early this morning, Dominique was sleeping on a sofa in her family's home in Maywood when a car came crashing through shortly after midnight, killing her and injuring her brother. Uh, Police say the driver had been shot just blocks away and had veered into the building. It was a drive-by shooting. Shot this guy. Car veers in and kills Dominique while she's asleep. You know, you can see that quote there in the article from the community mentor. This has to stop. Don't we all feel that? When we see school shootings, we see homelessness, when we see addiction, when we see all the, the, the sin the world throws at us. But church, I want you to leave today with this glorious hope that one day in the gospel... It will all stop. You know, when Dominique died, she went to heaven. But the glorious hope we we all have is that someday Christ will return and heaven and earth will be completely reunited. Revelation speaks of this. And in that book, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city. And when the city of God breaks in, it will overwhelm, do away, completely redeem this creation No more death, darkness, pain, or suffering. And all of God's children with the Son of God will enjoy a brand new creation forever and ever and ever. Amen. You know, one of the most beautiful things that I have ever experienced with these two eyes is a solar eclipse during totality. We had totality down in Tennessee. It was so beautiful, breathtaking, just for a second or two. But City Light, I say to you, That that beauty pales into comparison to the beauty we'll all experience when Jesus returns and heaven and earth completely overlap and he makes all things new. So what about you? Have you been made new in Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Have you trusted in him? Have you been reconciled back to the creator? If you haven't, that's God's invitation to you today. No, no matter your past, your background, how shady it's been, he desires today to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach in his eyes through Jesus. You know, maybe you're here today and you're a Christ follower, but you don't yet have a faith family. Let me just say in love that it'll be nearly impossible for you to navigate the not yet without the encouragement and the accountability that a faith family provides. And Noah, as I speak on behalf of our pastor, we welcome you here. We'd love to have you a part of our congregation. So let's stand together and pray, and then we'll take communion.
Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you're Lord. Oh, God, we are just overwhelmed by the fact that the God of everything relates to us, his creation through the Son. And God, may that sink in for us this week even as we face trial, calamity, adversity, that you're right there with us. The God of the universe has got us. So, Father, my prayer right now is that for those of in Christ, those of us who have been made alive in him, God, just remind us of that fact. May we celebrate that through communion and through singing. And if somebody's not new in you, multiple people may now, through the power of your spirit, may you make that dead heart come alive. And we'll give you glory for it, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.